This is Robert Capuccio. Welcome to the Self-Help Antidote, a weekly dose of reason, perspective, and insight, where we challenge conventional thinking and explore authentic strategies and insights around personal transformation. Our commitment to you is to bring you some of the world's leading experts in the domains of fitness, wellness, coaching, and behavior change, separating fact from fallacy. It's great to be back with all of you for another episode. This episode, I am on my own going solo. Very recently, in a conversation I had with my co-host, Tiffany Cook from Roll With The Punches, I shared with her my frustration about being invited onto podcasts and asked to just simply tell my story. And the reason why that frustrates me is not because I don't want to open myself up to vulnerability with the audience. On the contrary, I think that when something painful happens to us, when we struggle through and overcome a period of adversity or even trauma, as painful as that period of life might have been, it presents us with an opportunity and in some cases a responsibility to share that experience with others in a way that lifts them up and empowers them to confront their challenges and overcome and move on and successfully share that story with other people. It's just that I think if we are going to use story as a transformative medium, and I think there is nothing more transformative, more provocative, more articulate than a well-crafted story, we also have to empower as much as we inspire. And what I mean by that is we not only have to touch people emotionally, in a way that's relevant, where they can identify with the protagonist or the hero of that story, but they can imaginably project themselves into the story and walk away with takeaways. Well, what do I do exactly as a result of this? What have I learned specifically? And to me, that's the difference between simply telling a story and telling an empowering story, is at the end of that story, What are the steps? What are the processes? What are the questions that I can use to confront my own challenges and make myself stronger, make my life better? So I was looking at a book that a friend of mine had given me years back. I thought I wanted to talk to you about it a little bit. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Aviator, where Leonardo DiCaprio masterfully predicts the tormented life of Howard Hughes. Now, Howard Hughes at the time was the wealthiest man in the world, one of the aviation industry's most brilliant minds, and he could have had anything in life he wanted except for peace of mind. Howard Hughes was as eccentric as he was a genius, walking a fine line between the two of those states, kind of like an acrobat on a tightrope. He suffered deeply from obsessive-compulsive disorder, to the point that it completely consumed him. I remember watching the final scene from The Aviator and empathizing deeply with the character because growing up with Tourette's Syndrome, I'm no stranger to the debilitating nature of obsessive compulsive disorder, or OCD. At times, it seems like someone's taken over your brain with a remote control. You know full well that your thoughts are not necessarily reality. Like when I was 11 years old and I was 20 minutes away from home on a bus, I knew full well that I was so conscientious and I checked to make sure the door was locked multiple times, yet I still couldn't resist that thought. 
that was turning itself over and over in my head. And sometimes I had to get off that bus, go all the way home just to check a door that I know full well I already locked, but it was like somebody was controlling me. It's a misfiring in the brain. And the important thing here is the map is not the territory. And you recognize this with OCD, yet you're helplessly compelled to go along for the ride nonetheless. So in preparing for his role, Leonardo DiCaprio sought out the help of world-renowned OCD expert, Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz. Now, Dr. Schwartz assisted DiCaprio in developing even the most subtle behavioral nuances of an individual suffering in the ironclad grip of severe OCD. DiCaprio's performance was exquisite, winning him an Oscar nomination. Yet, according to Dr. Schwartz, something far more extraordinary resulted from their work together. For several months after the film, Leonardo DiCaprio suffered from OCD. Apparently, his behavior patterns had affected his brain so profoundly that it altered his serotonin pathways. So Dr. Schwartz reasoned that if you can think and behave yourself into patterns of OCD, there must be an invoice causality or an inverse, sorry, causality in the mind that can alter your brain in the opposite direction. So in picking up my own copy of Dr. Schwartz's book, Brain Lock, as well as The Mind and the Brain, my attention was drawn to his four-step process for dealing with OCD. Now, I realize that you probably are not suffering from clinical obsessive-compulsive disorder. And a lot of you probably don't even work with people that are suffering from clinical obsessive-compulsive disorder, and definitely not to the degree that someone like Howard Hughes was suffering. But one thing I think you can acknowledge is many of us, under the constant change and lack of predictability of today's society and the added pressures of our daily life, we struggle with reoccurring thought patterns that present obstacles excuse me, to the achievement of our goals. And they make us non-productive. They decrease our level of resourcefulness, creativity. So it's not just our outcomes they get in the way of. It's our experience of daily life that they conflict with. So I worked for 20 years in the health and fitness industry. So I was the co-founder of an international personal training certification, PTA Global. I was the director of professional development for the National Academy of Sports Medicine, and I've consulted for a lot of health club chains. So I've not only worked with trainers, salespeople, leaders across the globe, I've worked with my fair share of clients as well. And so often they would be plagued with thoughts like, I'll never get my exercise program right. You know, I, I always fail at this. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Or my whole family is overweight and genetically, I'm just destined to be this way. Or, you know, yeah, I'm, I know I'm making progress now, but, and they interpret a future event that hasn't even happened yet. So they're making a prediction based on past interpretations of failure and frustration. So they would go through this whole cycle of torment, self-sabotage, disappointment, and ultimately failure. So whether they're afflicted by a diagnosable disorder or conditioned thought process resulting from years of fear and failure and disappointment, they're afflicted all the same, and it's frustrating. 
So what I wanted to do is share with you a four-step process that I've used helping me with Tourette's that Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz lays out in his book, Brain Lock. And the four-step process is one, relabel, two, reattribute, three, refocus, and four, revalue. So let's start with number one, relabel. This is a recognition of the fact that a thought is not necessarily an absolute truth. So at this point, you might be attentive to a detrimental thought process and ensuing practices, but you recognize and tell yourself, okay, this thought that I'm having is a conditioned response. It's not my absolute reality. And then step two, reattribute. You have the realization that I am not my thoughts. So in the brainstem, the caudate nucleus, along with the putamen, functions in a way that it's kind of analogous to a car transmission. So if you're one of those people that one of your first cars were really dodgy, you can relate to this. When they're working correctly in the brain, they assure that we can shift mental gears both smoothly and efficiently. However, when the transmission in our car doesn't work, we get stuck in gear. We could sit there spinning our wheels, but going nowhere, turning the same thought over and over into our brain until it gets frustrating, even in some cases debilitating. And in this phase, the important thing to remember is our thoughts are not our identity. They're the result of biochemical activity in our brain. Trying to change your thoughts or quote unquote think positive while you're in this state might be difficult not to mention frustrating, if it's at all even possible. So I want you to not think about a pink flying elephant. Whatever you do, just don't let the thought of a pink flying elephant enter into your mind. The more you try to delete that image, the more prominent it becomes in your mind. Unless, of course, you want to think about a pink flying elephant, then go on. Because after all, who am I really to tell you what type of elephant you should have in your head? But here's step number three. And this step made an enormous difference in my life. And that is if you want to change your thoughts, change your state. Rather than trying to not think about what you're thinking about that's causing you distress, focus your attention on something else that requires a degree of immersion. Exercise is a great way to do this. And if you don't have time to exercise, even getting up and moving vigorously for a few minutes can do this. So I used to work with clients that on certain days, they just simply could not get out of their head. They couldn't get out of a negative or state or a defeatist attitude that persisted throughout the session. And what I learned was one way of dealing this with this used to be to acknowledge, hey, look, Jane, if her name was actually Jane, this is obviously important to you. And I think we should address this. Do I have your permission to just come back to this in about 10 minutes after a warm-up? Now, that statement where I acknowledged that this was a problem that was important, it communicated empathy and validity. So it didn't create defensiveness, which added to the state that this person was already in. However, by getting my clients to change their focus, physiology, and biochemistry and come back to this thought, 
like about 10, 15 minutes later, the thoughts that were previously really intrusive might have decreased in intensity. In some cases, they would disappear. So sometimes just getting back, writing down a thought, like if you can't get a thought out of your head that's causing you to struggle, just write it down so you know where it is. Put it on a post-it note, stick it on your desk. Okay, so that thought's not going anywhere. I can come back to this and address this if it's important. So don't invalidate it or ignore it. And then see if you can change your state through music, through movement. Maybe you can do both, take a walk around the block. Come back to it after you're done with your walk and see, okay, is this thought seeming a little bit more innocuous or is it still important? If it's still important, it probably requires some action on your part and you need to deal with it. But if it seems less threatening, it might've just been the state you were in and not your reality. And four, revalue. And when we revalue something, it's recognizing that the power of thought has on us is in direct correspondence to the value that we give it. The realization that a thought is not reality and it might not even be a permanent concern can help us to move on. So let's say you go out and you eat something that you quote unquote shouldn't have eaten. I know this has happened to everybody. It was a forbidden food. The difference between, oh, that was a single isolated event. I went out for a special event or a celebration. I was with friends and, you know, okay, I ate this. And, you know, that doesn't happen often. Well, that might elicit one intensity of response. But if you attach a meaning to it that this is a complete failure, it wasn't a single isolated event. It's a reflection of who you are as a person well, the response might be much more intense by comparison. And the greater the intensity of that response and the more we reinforce that this wasn't a behavior, but this is my identity, this is a character trait, the more likely the behavior is going to repeat itself. So we're not only going to not get rid of that behavior, we're going to reinforce it. But we can exercise our mind pretty much in the same way we would exercise our body. And that's through the exercise of our own volition. So in the beginning, we're deconditioned, you know, when we first start exercising. And we might even find the most rudimentary exercises to be extremely difficult. Yet if we persist, we find ourselves incrementally progressing. And if we persist long enough, it's possible that we find ourselves pleasantly surprised that within a year, the person in the mirror is almost unrecognizable to us. So like I said, in my own life, step three changed everything because I couldn't get rid of the thoughts that were causing me distress. But for me, working out gave me something else outside of myself to focus on. It was enormously valuable. A sense of outward directed focus helped me alleviate some of the most debilitating aspects of Tourette syndrome. Early in the 16th century, Lorenzo Medici of Florence, Italy, commissioned Michelangelo to sculpt the David. Now, the marvel that Michelangelo chose for the David was disregarded by other sculptors who, in their own right, were extraordinarily talented. The issue was that the grain of the marble made it exceptionally difficult to work with. Therefore, they deemed the marble unworkable. 
kind of like we talk to ourselves sometimes, isn't it? Yet when Michelangelo saw the marble, he had a different experience. Reportedly, he was able to envision the David trapped inside the marble. So for years, he worked relentlessly on chiseling away at the marble. And for years more, he worked on refining the sculpture. When the David was finally complete and unveiled at the Palazzo della Signora in Florence, the people were reportedly astonished at its magnificence. So as Donatello reported, when Michelangelo was asked how he was able to create such a masterpiece with the very same marble that other notable sculptors struggled with, he explained that he didn't create the David, but he had a vision of the David trapped inside the marble. And he simply removed everything that was not the David. So Michelangelo knew his purpose, number one. He was very clear on what he wanted, which was to fulfill his commission. He had a clear vision in his mind of the David as it existed once everything else that was not the David was removed and he went to work continuously. Every day, all day, bringing that vision out from his mind into tangible reality. So if you are very clear on what it is you want to do, you're clear on your vision of what that looks like and what's required to bring your future vision into your current reality, then you can sculpt any aspect of your life, yourself even, into the masterpiece that you were predestined to become. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Visit us at theselfhelpantidote.com to share your feedback, insights, and recommendations on what topics you'd like us to explore in the future.